This episode of Behind the Bots is brought to you by Fingertech Robotics, North America's top manufacturer of combat robotics parts. If you're interested in building your first combat robot, check out Fingertech's Viper Kit, which includes everything you need to build a fully functional, competitive ant weight. Fingertech also carries a complete line of wheels, hubs, motors, and other components if you want to build a bot from the ground up. Check them out online at www.fingertechrobotics.com. Havoc Studios in Norwalk, Connecticut. This is Behind the Bots, the podcast that brings you the stories of the builders behind the bots. I'm Chris. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kyle. And today on the podcast, our interview with Norwalk Havoc head referee, Jim Haney. We'll wrap up the show with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. If you like our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, CastBox, Player FM, and Podbean. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bots and tell a friend. We really appreciate your support. Time for this week's Combat Robotics News. I have four news items for you today. First up, don't call it a comeback. RoboGames is returning in 2023 after a five-year hiatus. That means Heavyweight Combat Robotics is coming back. Event organizer David Calkins made the announcement this past week saying the competition would return to Northern California's Alameda County Fairgrounds in early April. RoboGames was hugely influential during the sport's dark years between the time when BattleBots went off the air in 2002 and its return to air 12 years later in 2015. Many of today's top competitors honed their craft at RoboGames, which ran from 2004 to 2018, repeatedly at a financial loss. Uh, super excited about this news. Wanted to take a break and check in with you guys about what you thought about this. I have watched every single RoboGames competition. I absolutely love this event. I am so surprised it's coming back. It seemed like it was dead. Uh, what are you hoping to see at RoboGames in uh, the next year? I'm super excited that hopefully it rekindles some... Uh some some new and unique approaches to heavyweight robotics like the the way that we see uh the the atmosphere at norwalk impacting the lighter weight classes um i'd like to see some some teams that haven't necessarily had an opportunity uh to uh to join the uh the battle bots alum uh kind of strut their stuff and of course you know the 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 more locations that uh, allow people to participate and get involved in this sport, the better. Absolutely. Lindsay, any thoughts on this? You know, I am maybe a little ashamed to admit that I have not followed robo games in the past. Um, so I don't really have a lot of, you know, experience or like nostalgia or memories tied to it. So I'm just really excited to see how a large scale event like this one is run and you know what their approach to an event like this is and i don't know i'm like even just from like literally an event logistics side of things um i'm really interested maybe it's because we've you know we've seen 
um, Norwalk kind of evolve so much over two years. It's going to be exciting to see how someone else out there does it. Um, but there are so many different weight classes. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see them all under one roof. Yeah. Robo games is always an extravaganza. A lot of what we now consider veteran competitors never really competed on like the original comedy central run of BattleBots. They competed at Robo games. You know what I mean? That's where we got the, the Ray Billingses of the world from. And, um, you know, there's always been a very high level of competition there. You definitely saw a meta come out of there that I think is going to change dramatically just based on the amount of, you know, money and innovation that's been pumped into the sport. Thanks to BattleBots. It's going to be really interesting to see what Robo games looks like in 2023. I'm super excited about it. I'm also, it sounds like a great thing to go to live. I don't know what their capacity is for an audience, but I imagine it must be pretty large. When I think about Motorama, I mean, you're in a gigantic complex and about 5% of the people there are actually interested in robots and, you know, everyone else is there for motocross or um, all kinds of things that they have there at Motorama. Um, from what I understand, Robo Games is like its own standalone event. So I imagine everybody there is there for the robot combat. And I think, I think that's pretty cool. And Something that I hope that we get to see in person. I believe there are some other robotic competitions there as well. Um, like robot soccer, I believe, used to be a, a factor there. I don't know if it still is going to be. But they do have like a, a wide variety. But the, uh, the feature presentation, if you will, is always the robot combat, which I'm super excited about. Can't blame them for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on. BattleBots last week dropped a brand new trailer for BattleBots Champions. The Bounty Hunters-esque spinoff show that premieres in early August. Much like Bounty Hunters, BattleBots Champions will feature self-contained one-day tournaments with bots taking up champions like Tantrum, Tombstone, Endgame, and the others. Uh, the show will culminate in a final tournament with the winner taking home a brand new trophy, the Golden Nut. BattleBots Champions premieres thir- on Thursday, August 4th on Discovery Channel and Discovery+. Plus. Super pumped about that one. Meanwhile, we've got our first real look at Swamp Thing, the new heavyweight being built by former Tombstone pit crew member Rick Russ. Rick is an old school builder, having fielded a number of robots at both the original run of BattleBots and RoboGames. For the past 12 years, he's worked in the pit crew for Tombstone. In the off-season, he and Ray Billings apparently had a falling out over the robot, and Rick decided to apply to Season 7 of the show with his own bot. Team Scorpios caught up with Rick at their latest episode of the Scorpios Builder blog, showing off Swamp Thing's 19-pound vertical spinner, a chonky half-inch AR wedge, and a fast spin-up time. Like, stupid fast spin-up time. Like, teeny tiny little 19-pound vertical spinner with the entire weapon motor of a tombstone behind it. Fast spin-up time. It makes no sense. It's absolutely ridiculous, and I can't wait to see it. Uh, this bot team seems uh, purpose-built to defeat the hard-hitting horizontal spinners like Tombstone. No official word yet on whether or not Swamp, Swamp Thing has been invited to season 7 of the show, but we are hoping to see them in the battle box sometime soon. I mean, what a built-in and, narrative, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's storyline for days. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, and finally, the team behind the British Hammerbot Beta, a.k.a. Beta, 
has successfully sold their iconic pill-shaped hammer on eBay for roughly 960 US dollars. The auction drew some light ribbing from BattleBots fans online who apparently st- are still salty over Beta's fight with Rotator um, and insisted that the hammer was a great deal because it was brand new and never been fired. I love that. And that's it for this week's news. The shade. <laughs> Robot hammer for sale. Never worn. Never used. <laughs> worn once, slightly used. Never really thrown. <laughs> All right. So before we get to this week's interview, I want to quickly recap Norwalk uh, Havoc's July competition. This was our annual two-day competition with 18 hours of fighting stretching over Saturday and Sunday. 104 robots entered the box and just 12 got invitations to the 2022 World Championships in December. Um, In the 30-pounders, we advanced Mammoth team members Brandon Bennett Young and his bot Phenomenon, Deep Six Captain Dustin Eswine and his scary dual horizontal spinner Depth Charge, and Minotaur Captain Marco Antonio Magigliaro and his bot Toro Feather. Ultimately, it was Shatter Captain Adam Wrigley who took home first place in the 30s with Knock Off White, his shuffling, hard-hitting Hammerbot. In the 12s, we advanced Accident Builder Justin Smith's perennial crowd favorite, Business Cat, and his surprisingly effective 12-pound sportsman, uh, Ram Plan. And Jameson Goh's latest bot, a brand new vertical spinner called Psycho. In the end... It was Minotaur Captain Marco Antonio Mejidaro who took home the Golden Dumpster for the weight class and his bot Toro Jr. In the Beatles, we advanced a brand new Melty Brain called The Greatest Challenge. This thing was insane, by the way. I highly recommend you go check out videos of it. Uh, the mid-horizontal mid-cutter Adrift. The Brazilian bot Twin Beast from Team AGVS. And Eruption, built by Bloodsport team member Brian Boxel. Brian has now qualified two Beatles for the World Championships, having already qualified the horizontal Caldera. So, guys, what are your thoughts on this month's competition? Um, it was awesome. It was really, I mean, some of the best bots yeah. that we've seen in Norwalk were at the July event. Uh, I was super um, tuned in. You know, normally I, I really enjoy the 12s and 30s, but there was just so much um, uh, excitement around uh, the greatest challenge. And then of course, twin beast. It's like, it was a blast watching every single one of those fights. I think the greatest challenge might be the best uh, drivable melty brain ever in the weight class. Um, And, you know, twin beast, it, it's like, it's about the, it looks like it's the size of your, your Roku remote control, but somehow it's like the most explosive robot um, that it, it it doesn't just destroy your bot; it vaporizes it, right? <laughs> um, and the and and then you know having even even more of the Brazilian crew uh, here in July, they are um, they are so formidable. They are so uh, you know succinct with one another. They are just it's a real pleasure to watch them. I um. I was in the pits actually the night before uh, Saturday, and you know, literally Ed and the Havoc crew are trying to force them out of the pits when everyone else has already made it to their cars and have left the facility. They are still there, grinding away on their robots, making sure everything is perfect. They are um, they are real 
competitors uh, in in every respect. And it was uh, a real pleasure to have Marco and, and crew along for the ride this time. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited that they're going to be back in December uh, with multiple bots. Uh, that said, the 30-pound division was also a lot of fun to check out. Um, uh, there was one really bad call, I think, uh, <laughs> and that was probably had something to do with Phenomenon, and it, it ruptured a couple of tanks on some kind of new, uh, really radical flamethrower robot uh, with a new builder that kind of came out of the blue. He's, a, he's incredible. Um, <laughs> I hope he comes back. Uh, at some point, maybe in the next uh, five years when, you know, he can uh, afford to <laughs> rebuild that bot that was absolutely dismantled. But really exciting event in July. I'm I'm so pumped for uh, some of the ideas that are percolating now for September. Um, l- onwards and upwards. Absolutely. Lindsay, what are your thoughts on the event? Oh my God. I had so, I had so many. <laughs> um, I also want to echo all of the love for the greatest challenge. Uh, I have to admit melty brains in the past have not really been my favorite. They're a very interesting concept, but in practice, you know, you're really just watching a bot ping pong itself all around the cage. And a lot of it <laughs> is honestly left up to chance. And, um, you know, it's it's just not been my favorite thing because I really like watching bots that are drivable. Um, and then here comes the greatest challenge, who the builders have said they've been working on for five years. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. isn't their first time at Havoc. I, I think maybe their second. Their their first time, I don't think that they did maybe quite so memorably, but they went back and they iterated and they improved and they brought what is, I think in, I don't know, not indisputably, that's a very strong word, but very much, in my opinion, (laughs) the most drivable melty brain I think there ever has been, at least at Norwalk. Um, I a thousand percent agree. I mean, at this weight class, for sure. New level of competitiveness um, and just like interest watching it. Um, you know, we when we got home on that Sunday, we talked to Chris's dad who, you know, will watch the stream here and there and he checks them out. Um, and he called that one out by name and he was like, that is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So if it if it caught Johnny D's attention, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it's good. Um, it was thrilling to meet uh, Marco in person he is just as nice and as lovely as you might expect from seeing him on television. Maybe even more so, if that's possible. Um, He's a straight-up sweetheart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and his whole team were so, so nice and so sweet. Um, one of the things that we did not mention in this write-up is what I think was one of the most memorable um, moments of 2022, and that is Depth Charge making its glorious return, but yep. not against another 30-pounder, against eight Beetleweights who knew that they were going up against certain death, and they still went in, and it was incredible. It was like, it's like what you always hope for. Yeah, I think this was the first time one of those like Rumble sideshow attractions that we put on at the end while we're just kind of waiting for the championship battles to, to be ready has gotten as much 
attention and love as any of those championship fights. It was amazing. That shot of um of him like launching the bot clear across the arena and then just shredding the plywooded floor underneath it is one of my favorite things I have ever seen in a Norwalk <laughs> arena. It was just like, oh, where'd it go? It's gone now. He vaporized it. He didn't vaporize it, by the way. The bot was still working afterwards. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That bot is uh, is something else. Uh, <laughs> wow. I don't know if uh, the Norwalk YouTube has, you know, turned this into a standalone clip yet, but I know it's coming. Oh, yeah. um, and I hope it goes viral because that was that was so fun to watch. Um, and then let's talk about the, the three pound championship series. Yes. And how if we hired a team of like 90s or 80s sports movies writers to write it. They could not have come up with a better script than what actually happened in real life. Like substitute the evil Russian team in one of those uh, 80s Russian uh, like uh, sports movies <laughs> for an evil Brazilian team. Right. And they're not evil. They're wonderful people. We love them. But, you know, for narrative sake, and sure, you have sure. literally the best story possible. You have this scrappy like, young Pennsylvania kid. Uh, in Brian Boxall out there doing his very best fighting this giant Brazilian machine and coming out on top against all odds. And like that ending after, you know, the rubber match, they fought twice in, they lost to each other once. And then they go in for the rubber match, the final championship. And you see twin beast for the first time ever in the entire competition, their weapon goes down. And not only does their weapon go down, they erupt into flames. A literal eruption. <laughs> A literal <laughs> eruption. Brian Boxel going nuts. Everybody on the Brazilian team going nuts. Everybody just overjoyed. Like, it was one of those, this is why we play moments. It was phenomenal. It is going to be on highlight reels. For literally ever, if nothing else, because of that giant smile on Brian Boxel's face after he <laughs> finally won a golden dumpster, something he's been trying for for two and a half years. And we are just, uh, I am beyond the moon proud of him and happy for him. And man, did the Brazilians bring some amazing bots, but that twin beast was something else. And I love the fact that it was two uh, hub motor designs, not something you normally see making yeah. it all the way to the finals. And these guys built these just, super durable super tanky hub motor designs um you know with the the weapon motor inside the weapon itself and they were able to go all the way to the end that was just mind-blowingly cool i loved it yeah and and i mean is there someone easier to root for than brian boxel i mean he's like <laughs> the most wholesome like happy you know resourceful smart person around and like every time he was interviewed it was just, you know, you couldn't help but just just cheer for him. And it was uh, it was so, so, so wonderful getting to see him win. And even the the team behind Twin Beast, they were smiling ear to ear because of how that match went down. I mean, if you're going to lose, like, that's how you do it. <laughs> and um, just like the level of sportsmanship that, you know, everyone really brings at Norwalk makes makes it feel so special. Everyone is there to win. Everyone is bringing the most cutting edge designs, 
you know, pushing themselves further and further every time. I mean, yes, there are always going to be, you know, the beater kits and there's a place for them too. I'm not going to, I'm not one of the haters for them. Like that's how a lot of people start and that's totally valid. And I'm never going to put that down, but there are other people who, once they move on from that, you know, they, they push the, the envelope further and further and further and you can still do that and come with a smile on your face for your competitor. And like, I just think you can't really find that anywhere else. So I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff, but it, it makes me, you know, so much love what, uh, what Norwalk has going on and, and really the whole sport of combat robotics. Amen to that. Amen to that. Yeah. Wagner, uh, from AGVS was almost as excited to watch his bot burst into flames <laughs> yeah. as Brian Boxer was. That was pretty amazing. That was pretty amazing. And like, even aside from the competition, itself i i think that this was maybe had to have been the best norwalk to date i mean they've done so much in the space to make it a really spectator friendly um area you know experience without it being at the detriment or, or expense of the builders um you know um vip um ticket holders which is only like 30 dollars for the whole weekend so it's not you know out of the range for um you know a lot of people it's pretty accessible i would say um you know they got to do vip tours which you know you you kyle and uh luke were able to lead um and it just brings people like closer than ever the whole bot museum i mean gil um you know the the community manager and statistician at norwalk had worked so so hard getting the bot museum up and running um what were the new ones they had this time they had panic attack they had mammoth mammoth oh my god mammoth <laughs> they had overhaul it was cool to um, see mammoth and I know that we're getting more on the way, which I'll uh, remain tight-lipped about. But, I mean, it's so cool. And then there was, like, the vending machine, which you could do for free. The, not the vending machine, like the claw machine where you can try to win T-shirts and stickers. And, I mean, it's just, like, such a cool, cool space. Um, and, you know, if you haven't gone yet, if you can make it happen, it's so fun. Uh, my favorite addition to the Bot Museum was something so simple, but it was that section where they had the same size, same thickness cutouts of all of the different types of material commonly used yes. in these bots. So you could feel the difference in just weight and density of each one of those materials. It's one of those things like, you know, it's very dangerous to be inside of the box and feel these bots and be close to these bots. Even when we like, take these people on the tours, it's like, you may not touch the robots, right? They are orders of magnitude more powerful than your your uh, <laughs> table saw that you have at home. And table saws are one of the leading causes of like hand loss in America, right? Um, so w I love the fact that we you can like feel what the material of these bots is like, feel what they're made out of and really get a good idea of when we say it's an AR500 wedge on that bot, that's what we need. You know, like, I loved that part of it. Yeah. And I loved how in the, you know, the description board, it kind of gave everything a rating based on flexibility, strength, affordability. And I think there was one, one other descriptor. And I believe it was Jim Haney, who was the one who like, 
um, gave everything its rating. And it was just so, so interesting to be like, okay, this is how AR500 compares to carbon fiber or UHMW or it was like titanium, one of them. I forget, but yeah, titanium was one of them. And that was the one that uh, was like $440 for that little tiny plate. So you can see like, oh, maybe affordability was one of them. If I hadn't said that already, I forget. But, um, it was like so cool. It was almost like, um, like a trading cards or something where you could see like, you know, this has this rating. So it's probably good in this setting, um, but if you are using it for a different purpose, you want to go something with like, you know, different rating. I'm maybe not explaining this very well, but I just thought it was like such, I'm such a visual learner. Um, and it really put everything into perspective for me. And I loved it. I really hope that they continue to build more content, even whether it's like actually installation um, or environmental graphics like that, that you know, help the people walking through the door who might be interested in getting involved in combat robotics, like really digest what they're seeing when they're tuned into a fight. Um, so like you could stare at that poster for, you know, 15 minutes. And then when you see a bot encased in UHMW and another one encased in, you know, a, a carbon fiber, you know what the trade-off was and yeah. the affordability was and how easy it is to work with those materials and it's just a little bit more insight. Now they can continue to roll with that and maybe like share, you know, battery technology or, um, yeah. you know, uh, ESCs versus uh, VESCs, you know, uh, uh, brush versus brushless. Uh, all the cool things that you can, um, that you can uh, put into the proper context for combat robotics and just showcase it alongside the museum. It's really awesome. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, when I was in grad school, like my dream job, everything that I wanted to do when I got out was to work in museum education and build like museum exhibits. So um, just seeing what they were able to do, I don't know. It, it was it's just so, so, so great. And I think it's done to such a high level. I agree a thousand percent. Yes, it was absolutely a phenomenal event. Um and I cannot wait until we go back there in two months I, when we are all much better rested and uh, really, really, really excited to see what level of competition we see again. And who knows? Maybe Clyde Magnuson will make a return. I don't know if he's ever left the parking lot, Lindsay. He's, yeah, he's still there. <laughs> last, last I saw, um, he had turned, you know, a, a tarp into some kind of makeshift shelter and... <laughs> Uh, was um, fighting a, a, a couple of rats over a slice of pizza. So <laughs> He's just going to build a bot out of the scraps that get left outside of the facility, and uh, that's what he'll be competing with when he comes back. I love it. After the break, our interview with Jim Haney. This interview is brought to you by MaxAmps and the company's new exclusive line of combat robotics batteries called Max Combat. Max Combat battery packs are built in the U.S. and designed for both durability and performance for combat robotics. Max Combat batteries come with custom wraps, including your team's logo, internal hard skins for extra protection, puncture-resistant wire sleeves, and a custom metal Max box for charging and storage. Check out the Max Combat section at maxamps.com. 
This week on the podcast, we have NHRL head referee Jim Haney. Jim is stepping down as head referee later this month to return to the Rochester Institute of Technology, where he's studying industrial engineering. He took a two-year break from his studies to join the Norwalk Havoc team as an evil henchman, one of a small group of exceptional people handpicked by Norwalk Havoc founder Austin McCord. We're looking forward to learning more about Jim and get a behind-the-scenes look at Norwalk Havoc in the hour ahead. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you on. Um, you know, you're you're one of those figureheads in uh, in the sport and, you know, at Norwalk that seems to, I, I can't even describe it. It's like you're a an encyclopedia of knowledge for just about everything. It's, it's incredible watching the pre-production that happens, like building up to an event where people can ask you questions, anything from how much gas can I put into a one pound canister <laughs> for people to be safe to... Uh, help us figure out what's going on with this audio line or video line running out to a uh, a satellite television in the VIP area. It's it's <laughs> I've never seen a, a Renaissance man that can just tackle any technical challenge. And so hopefully in 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 the next you know uh, half an hour hour we can kind of figure out well how did you build this Rolodex of skills? Um, so let's just let's just start with. You know, what were you doing before you met Austin? Well, like you mentioned, I'm a student at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Uh, Part of RIT's curriculum is that all students have to go out and do some time in industry before they can graduate. It's normally about 50 weeks. So your four-year degree program becomes a five-year degree program. I was looking for an internship to fill the last three months of that requirement for myself. And a friend of mine sent me a link that Austin had posted on his LinkedIn looking for evil henchmen. And there was almost no other information about the role, just that they're looking for someone with technical expertise who wants to be an evil henchman and can relocate to Connecticut. And Austin is an alum of RIT, and I had met him once or twice before through uh, events at the university. So I decided, yeah, you know, why not? This sounds unique. It's going to definitely stand out on a resume. I might as well apply and see what's going on. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a really interesting uh, resume patter. Um, r- really, you, you're going to end up in a place probably in some kind of volcanic lair. Uh, but, you know, what was it about the ambiguity of, of an evil henchman did you did you know what like Austin's project was, or did you have any inkling as to what his plans were? No idea, actually. Uh, the only thing I had known Austin to work on was his previous company, Datto. Uh, but there was nothing in this post talking about what exactly I'd be doing, what company I'd even be working for. Uh, it just vaguely mentioned remote control and technology work. So I really had no idea what I was getting into. Was this like a Craigslist post? <laughs> like you said, what? it was on LinkedIn. Right? Oh, on LinkedIn. Yeah. Wow. So it's like when when I let's just say I'm browsing jobs in my career field, which is like design. Anytime I see someone that posts something that's like, "Oh, we need a graphic design ninja," that's that's like generally the lingo for we can't describe exactly what we need, but we need someone to just do everything. Uh, is that is that like kind of like the sense that you got? Uh, or, you know, um, 
you know, were you planning on, you know, exploring this, this venture with like your current, uh, your current skill set? I was definitely a little bit concerned at first. Cause like you said, when you see someone looking for like the term that I always see is the engineering unicorn or the engineering superstar, <laughs> it's a sign that, okay, hold on. Uh, you're going to be doing a lot of work here and they don't quite know what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, but part of what made me think that this would actually be a great opportunity is just the kind of person that Austin is. I have a lot of friends who worked for him at Datto, and they all said that he's not really a traditional tech CEO, and he really loves to just have a lot of fun with what he's doing. So when someone like him says a supervillain and an evil henchman, I knew that he was just more having fun with it than actually, <laughs> you know, just putting out a random job posting. Right. Uh, but even then, you know, who knows what really to expect from him. So prior, let's jump back a little bit further. Prior to even, um, you know, a- attending RIT and, you know, diving into this insane world of combat robotics, you're originally from the Hudson Valley, uh, just like myself. Is that is that right, Jim? That's right. Uh, whereabouts in the Hudson Valley were you from? I grew up in the very small village of Montgomery, New York, in Orange County. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in the Middletown, Newburgh area. And it was also nice because it's so close. You could pop down to New York City on the weekends and stuff like that. Yeah, it's an interesting spot. It's like, you know, you're a stone throw away from more industrial kind of cities like like Newburgh, but you're also somehow kerplunked in the middle of farmland. Exactly. I actually grew up bordering farmland on three sides, so I can very much relate to that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am. I'm definitely of that same ilk. Uh, and so, while you were out there in in that Montgomery area, you founded a small business um, as as a young man. Can you tell us a little bit about? Is it uh, Venator Technologies or Venator te- Technologies? Yes, Venator Technologies. Uh, so, it's being a village of 400 people there's not exactly a lot to do during the summer uh and so rather than doing what everyone else does and going to mow lawns or work on the farm or get an internship uh somewhere an hour away i decided to take some of the money that i'd saved up from mowing lawns and shoveling driveways and buy myself a 3d printer and once i did that it was pretty much the first 3D printer in town. So people started coming to me with things that they had found online that they wanted me to make for them. And after a while, I started thinking like, hey, you know, I could probably do this for more than just the random people who come up to me in, in the school and ask for stuff. And so slowly I started making parts for more and more companies and people and bought more and more printers until uh, by the end of high school, I had turned my parents' dining room into what we call the lab, where I had almost a dozen 3D printers making parts for everything from Hollywood movie props to uh, protective devices for Canadian oil and gas companies. Oh, okay. <laughs> questions. New questions have come come to the surface here. Uh, what, what movie props? <laughs> Is there anything that we might be familiar with? And... Um, how does, I, I'd imagine that you are a teenager at this point. How does one get an introduction to be making safety equipment devices for the Canadians? <laughs> well, uh, funnily enough, a lot of people I got into doing business for this was through Reddit, actually. Uh, people would post and say like, hey, how do I find a company to 3D print this thing that our engineers designed? 
And I would just quickly write him a direct message and say, yeah, I can do it. Uh, I didn't mention the part where I was a 17 year old in my parents' living room, but uh, you know, that probably gave me a little bit more uh, professional look to what I was doing. And I will say, I can't speak to the specifics of any props or things that I've made, but they have become commonplace enough and in a media that was widespread enough that I will sometimes come across parts that I've made on random clips on YouTube, uh, which is a pretty surreal experience. Holy moly. This is uh, this is way more impressive impressive than what I was doing in my parents' uh, dining room when I was seventeen. <laughs> um, so probably then uh, being you know someone who was at the forefront of like a new kind of maker culture that came out was this what told you you know I have to explore doing something more on the technical engineering side when you wanted to pursue a degree? Is this what is this the path that led you down to RIT? Uh, yeah, this was actually a big part of it. Um, I had a mentor who taught me a lot about 3D printing from the more academic side. Uh, he was a plastics engineer who worked at the University of Massachusetts. And when I started talking about going to college, I was conversing with him about what I wanted to do. And despite the fact that he worked for the University of Massachusetts, he suggested that I look into RIT. And mm -hmm. I sort of got this idea that, you know, if a professor is telling you to look into a university that's not his own, then there must be something that really great that stands out about it. And so I started looking and RIT actually has a cutting edge 3D printing research facility. In addition to a tons of hands-on curriculum, such as the co-op program that eventually led me to be here at Norwalk. And so I felt it was just a fantastic fit for me. And then after you uh, began attending RIT, um, you you got like tied up in a really interesting venture, uh, venture there, Rockets at the RIT Launch Initiative. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So Rockets are cool. I, I don't think anyone will disagree with that fact. <laughs> And I had a bit of unique background coming into RIT in that one of the summers before I founded my business, I worked at as an intern for the County Office of Emergency Management. Uh, we dealt specifically with uh, planning and assessment and reactions related to the Indian Point Nuclear Energy Center there in the county. And so I had this very heavy safety background and a lot of my thought processes and the way that I worked through problems were very safety oriented because of that experience. So coming into RIT, there was a relatively new club that had been founded, which was a high powered rocket uh, building group. And a lot of people sort of don't understand what high powered rockets are. When they picture a rocket in their head, they picture either an Estes model rocket or something like a SpaceX Falcon 9. And we're somewhere in the middle there. The rockets that we build for the university are usually between 50 and 150 pounds, and we'll go to between 10,000 and 30,000 feet. Uh, but to get back to the main point there, as I was walking around talking with them, they were starting to get into trying to build out some experimental rocket motors there on campus. And while it's a really cool thing, and they had a lot of the good engineering technical background to do it, there was nobody on the team who really wanted to spend their time focusing on safety and how to do things properly and to tell everyone else that, no, you shouldn't stand 
three feet from the rocket motor and light it with a sparkler. And so I sort of volunteered myself based on my past experience to step up into that role. And over the last four years, I've led the team as their director of operations or their chief safety officer and guided all of these students who, some of which are now actually working in real aerospace fields at SpaceX or in NASA, building these rockets. And I'm I'm really glad to know that um, some of these other folks that you had uh, professional relationships with probably took a little bit of your um, that order of operations, that clear, uh, that clear thinking of, of what it means to, to, to be safe and to have a checklist. And now they're out there working in the world. Um, you know, Lindsay and I had been talking just prior to this, uh, to this interview, we have been, you know, attending Norwalk Havoc since its original location at 50 day and seeing, how safety protocol has evolved since uh, since then, and now on Water Street with this with the huge pits, and there is a um, there is a scenario uh, for just about anything that can go wrong, and I think that is all that has all been birthed from your participation and your involvement with NHRL. So it's really interesting to see that you um, you had this uh, this penchant for. For, for for safety and and you know and operations prior to uh, to coming and it's not just something that you recognized as you know hey we need to work on this here but you you brought that experience to NHRL and I think that you know the entire community there um, and I, I feel as somebody who has built a couple of very stupid dangerous robots um, I'm very glad that you're there Jim. <laughs> Um, you know, I can ask you questions about how much gas am I legally allowed to put into this tank so that I don't blow out the walls of a box. And you are there with an answer. And I know that there's probably some kind of mathematical computation behind the amount of gas that I can put in a robot. So um, we all appreciate it uh, that you um, that you were there and that you were involved. And, you know, because of that, we all have our eyes, fingers and toes. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, combat robotics is not like any other hobby that you'll have. Uh, everything that we build here wants to hurt you. Uh, even the little three-pound robots, I was shocked by how much power and, you know, how much fear they struck in me when I first saw them at my first event. So above any other hobby or sport that I can think of, safety is absolutely the most critical thing in combat robotics. So we talked a little bit about, you know, that job posting of an evil henchman. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your day to day? Because, you know, the events are, they're kind of, they're marathons. It's, it's all, you know, it's all there in, in the live stream. But tell us what's happening in the day to day in between tournaments um, and, you know, what your job is as an evil henchman. So when I first started, uh, I did maybe 10% of my day would be spent on Norwalk Havoc. Uh, officially, I work for Austin at a company separate from NHRL. But as time has gone on and this event has gotten bigger, I've slowly shifted to the point where I now do 99% of my work day on Havoc. And then that last 1% is working on the stuff that I'm actually originally hired to work on. So early on, I did a lot of fun projects at 50 Day, uh, things like 
putting our vending machine on wheels so it can drive around and bring you sodas. We took an old airport luggage cart and souped it up so it can go, you know, 30, 40 miles per hour and drive around town to get us coffee and stuff. And also just building out our general facilities, upgrading our wood shop here, buying some new tooling and equipment to really help us build some crazy stuff. But over time, as Havoc got bigger, I started shifting more and more into handling some of the more dedicated engineering work that needed to get done to keep the event growing and respond to just how many builders and how many crazy bots we had now. Uh, it's a very open-ended role. I have a boss, obviously, but I might go days or sometimes even weeks without talking to them or getting any direct input on what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm very much left to my own devices to figure out what needs to get done and what's the best way to respond to it. Uh, and responding to things can involve anything from writing out policies, purchasing equipment, or even just designing our own equipment from scratch. A lot of what makes Norwalk Havoc unique and what makes our cages run so well is 100% scratch built stuff here by our engineers or myself. And to just give people out there an idea of the the diversity of those things that you guys are are building from scratch, I I couldn't believe that everything from you know the house bots that evolved from basically cinder blocks on wheels to now you know big steel uh, cubes that you know far outweigh the uh, the competitors bots to even the golden dumpster was made by hand by you is that is that correct? Yep, uh, all the dumpsters we built and also the Golden Brett, which was the championship trophy, was machined in-house, has custom electronics we designed in-house. I wrote the software for all of them, and then they were all assembled here in-house too. And that that Golden Brett was gorgeous. Even when you brought it up to the announcer's desk, we had white gloves <laughs> so that we wouldn't put any fingerprints on it. The thing was buffed to like a high gold shine. I wanted to steal it so bad. <laughs> it was the only thing I could think about is I wonder if he's got a second one back there, but that one probably was like a hundred hours of work or more. Um, but absolutely gorgeous. I don't know uh, what they're going to do without that, um, you know, without that, uh, without that, you know, that maker presence there when you, uh, when you return to school, Jim, is there anyone there to, to kind of help fill the gap? So, over the past few months, uh, we have brought on two new henchmen on the uh, Austin side here that'll probably be helping out a lot with the engineering and technical stuff at Norwalk. And then the Norwalk Havoc team has brought on some of their own talent to help with some of the audio video work, as well as take over some of the more administrative work that I used to handle, like hiring and training all the staff. What um what have been some of your favorite projects NHRL related um whether it was at uh you know the the beginning of the, the fifty day era or over here now at Water Street is there a couple of projects that really stand out in your mind as ones that would be really interesting for our listeners to to hear about? For me personally, it's definitely not the most exciting sounding project, but one of the ones that was my favorite to work on was the button boxes that are cage side that allow you to tap out or indicate that you're ready. It's such a simple concept of just click the button, that means you're good to go, click the other button, that means you're done fighting. But how we implemented it on the back end, both in the electrical and software sense, but also the physical sense, 
was a very exciting process that I actually went through uh, multiple engineering revisions on to get them to the state they're in today. And it involved the whole gamut of engineering from actual mechanical stress analysis to electrical engineering, designing the custom internals for them. And then also into some industrial and systems engineering, going over how they're assembled, how they're maintained in the field, how we replace them, how we train the staff to use them properly. And you might not be able to see it from just coming to the events, but we've actually gone through six iterations of them so far, trying to perfect them as much as possible. And that kind of iterative engineering work is something that really excites me. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, as an evil henchman, you're, you're a maker, you're someone that can, you know, they can go to um, for, for fabrication or just the ideation and generation of virtually anything. How, how does the, 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 the role of head referee come to the surface? Um, what does the head referee do? Uh, and were, did you have any familiarity with combat robotics before you joined Norwalk Havoc that would, you know, lend to that expertise of being a head ref? Not really, actually. Uh, before coming to Norwalk, the extent of my experience with combat robotics was I used to watch Comedy Central reruns uh, a decade and a half ago. So I definitely had to learn everything from the ground up. Uh the head referee was actually a role that I sort of invented out of necessity as things went on. Uh, up until then, it was a very informal process for who's calling the match and how that's all handled cage side. And as the league was getting bigger, and we were introducing so many more cages, we couldn't be as informal anymore. So as I started to implement the new policies and rules regarding how f- matches would be judged, I just sort of naturally fell into this position since I was writing everything already. I might as well be the expert on all of it. Uh, And then it also worked out well as we started hiring in more referees and more cage side staff. I, since I was the one who wrote their job descriptions, I ended up being their manager. And so that just further solidified me as this sort of like head operations, head referee kind of role. Can you, um, can you share a little, maybe an anecdote about, some of your time as a ref, I mean, you can go back and look at some of the highlight reels of, uh, of some of our fights here over the last, um, you know, couple of seasons. And there has been some incredibly fun, exciting, explosive moments. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen robots break, uh, you know, part of the Lexan wall. We've seen explosions. Yeah. We've, we've seen a penguin on fire. Can you, um, can, can you tell us what it's like being in a position where there is some controlled chaos happening inside of a box, but there has to be that through line of safety behind all of it? It is pretty insane. I've always said that people who are a fan of combat robotics definitely need to come out and watch the event in person. As exciting as a live stream is, seeing it from the bleachers is 100 times more insane. But then to actually be standing cage side, sometimes with your hands literally on the cage as these things happen, it multiplies it again by a thousandfold. Uh, every hit, every bounce against the cage, every explosion, you can feel that all while you're standing there. Uh, for instance, when we had the penguin fire that you mentioned, standing cage side, I could actually feel the heat radiating off of that fire through the cage walls. And like I actually felt like I was standing in the sunlight. Uh, which is a pretty crazy experience. 
And as far as the safety goes, I've also sort of fallen into this role of being the firefighter for the league somehow. And so I've always had to keep a close eye on everything that's going on, looking out for the robots that look like they're going to catch on fire. Uh, but then also there's sometimes the ones that don't look like they're going to catch on fire. And next thing you know, the box is full of white smoke. And so it's a lot of keeping your eyes open, always being aware of what's going on, uh, both in the box that's fighting and potentially in the box that's not fighting or the pits or somewhere else in the building. It, it really is something it's like, you know, I always thought that I was I, I couldn't be an umpire no matter how much I wanted to be an umpire for baseball when I was a kid because like I I, I blank out all the time and I know mm-hmm. that someone would throw like a hundred mile an hour fastball right down the pipe and I would be like uh ball maybe <laughs> but like you you have practically like one hand on a fire extinguisher one hand on like an emergency like a uh, chemical like resistant like you know, uh, respirator device. And it's, it's wild that you have to be tuned in sometimes like that for 16 hours in a row. Um, you know, a lot of those protocols, you also kind of developed yourself. Uh, would you say that you were ahead of the curve on a lot of those? Or was it because like every time some kind of new disaster would pop up, you would have, you would have to create a new action plan for the future? It's a bit of both. Uh, you can never write a perfect plan. So even if we thought we were rock solid, ready for anything, somebody will come along with a bigger, crazier bot and poke a hole in our plans. Uh, for instance, depth charge. You know, We thought that the most we were ever going to get on our cage was a slight scratch on the interior. And then depth charge came and slammed into the wall and broke that piece of Lexan in half. And now all of a sudden we start thinking about, you know, all these things we took for granted, do we need to go back through and reevaluate our safety procedures? Do we need to reinforce the cage further? What does it take to stop this from happening again in the future? Speaking of unconventional bots that um, are uh, that poke holes in safety, let's talk a little bit about Austin McCord. <laughs> so yes maybe you can just kind of give uh some of our listeners out there that aren't too familiar with him um you know a little baseline of you know who is austin uh tell us a little bit about what it's like working for him and um what motivates him sure so for those of you who don't know austin he's the founder of havoc robotics he originally was the founder of a tech company called Datto that he founded right out of school. Uh, And then Datto has become uh, very successful in the past decade, which has allowed him to now focus on more fun and exciting and unique ventures such as Norwalk Havoc. Uh, He's an incredibly interesting person to talk to. He is well-versed in just about every subject. And in fact, I cannot find a topic that I'm more knowledgeable on than he is. Even if it's the most obscure, random rocketry thing, he'll know more than me and I'll end up learning something over the course of the conversation. He's very interested and excited in pushing the limits in no matter what he's doing. And you could see that in the design philosophy in a lot of the custom systems we have at Norwalk or also in his crazy unconventional bots that he brings to events every once in a while. Yeah, it's it's so funny that you know, you guys have built this, uh, this rapport, um, because here you are the person who's trying to 
put a safe container on everything. And he's a guy who's just like, I'm going to fill a bunch of containers with liquid nitrogen and dump them on another robot and see what happens. Um, how, how does that play out in a day to day where, you know, you're constantly trying to put everything into a safe envelope and he's trying to just tear that envelope and, you know, uh, and explode it. Uh, it's actually really good because, uh, when Austin comes in one day with a jet engine and says, Hey, I'm going to slap this on a 30 pound robot. What do you think? It then gives me some time to think about it and prepare for it. Whereas if a competitor showed up day of the event with a jet engine, we'd be a little bit blindsided. So all of his crazy robot ideas that he comes up with, and there's even some more extreme ones that are coming down the pipeline. Uh, we look at them all through the eyes of our current safety procedures and our cages and think about how we could reinforce and better ourselves to improve it and actually respond to someone bringing in a crazy bot like this. He also does realize that there is a limit to some things. He's had some extreme bot ideas in the past that we've had to look at and say, you know, there's no way we can actually do this and guarantee safety for everyone. So we're going to have to not allow that. And then that has prompted a change in our rules, a limitation on some materials or something along those lines. Uh, so you'll sometimes see every once in a while, we'll have to release a middle of the year emergency rules update. And more often than not, that was probably prompted by a crazy bot idea that Austin had. I, I love the self-informative nature of Norwalk. It's the coolest place in, in the whole world. I have one more question here um, in regards to Austin. Why does he consider himself a supervillain? And why does he have evil henchmen? You know, I don't know, actually. I haven't done much actual evil stuff working here. Uh, but everyone seems to sort of follow that same naming scheme. Uh, for instance, Ed, who is... Most people know as the old guy who works in the workshop during events. I believe that his official title is Hitman, which sort of plays into this whole evil henchman supervillain theming. Uh, but beyond just theming up 50 Day Street to be a bit like an evil villain's lair, we don't do much that's actually that bad. Yeah, he is. He... <laughs> Hitman, I like it. He could also be like an odd job. Yeah. Because for those of for those folks out there who don't know Ed, he's um, he's old school engineering mechanic can build you anything in forty minutes kind of guy, and that is just such a necessary personality to have in the background there. Uh, what's your dynamic like working with Ed? Oh, it's fantastic! Like you said, we can stick him on just about anything, and even if he has no idea what he's doing, he'll build something that works perfectly right from the get-go. Uh, anything from as mundane as putting together furniture for the VIP lounge to the day before the event, it turns out we need a whole new desk for the audio booth or we need all these custom tables for the bot museum. And it'll just run to the workshop, grab his tools and get to it. And the next morning we have something beautiful and ready to go. Yeah, it's 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 so cool. One, hopefully one day we can have Ed on the podcast. We'll just need to make sure that Nicole, our editor, has a heads up so we can edit out about 90% of the things that he says. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So um, looking into the future, Jim, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the future of the league. Where do you think Norwalk Havoc is heading as a league? And 
What do you think it's going to look like two years from now? Hmm. I mean, Norwalk Havoc is already one of the best, if not the best, combat robotic leagues in the world, in my opinion. In my very biased opinion, I should say. Uh, but from watching other events and becoming more immersed in this hobby, uh, Norwalk Havoc really sets the bar above everyone else. And I really hope that in the next few years, Havoc will continue to grow and expand and will continue to really push the envelope and set the new standards. Uh, it really seems like we're entering into a golden age of combat robotics now. And I think that Norwalk Havoc has the potential to continue to accelerate and grow that golden age for years to come. I mean, there, yeah, it's, it's interesting because just looking at it from, you know, I, I was an outsider who just enjoyed the sport of combat robotics, you know, again, since the Comedy Central days of, you know, um, uh, of, of silly, sillier robots and some serious robots, but, you know, Norwalk has, they've, they've looked at the tournament style experience, but they've, they've grown it into something that is incredibly fun and entertaining to watch live. The live experience is one that you can't find um, anywhere else at any tournament because a lot of those tournaments are built for the competitors, not necessarily the spectators. And so this is like the first league that I've really seen that, you know, kind of looks at the sport from all angles and creates and fosters an environment for everyone and it also like really kind of makes the sport feel more accessible i we get so many fans who are there you know in person and they want to start building things they want to get involved with the sport is does does norwalk havoc and havoc robotics do they plan to play a part in helping some of those folks that are interested in getting it, you know, started in the sport of combat robotics, giving them the tools and maybe even the components or, or whatever to get that dream uh, off the ground. Oh, absolutely. Anytime we do anything related to Havoc Robotics, we always ask the question of, is this what's best for the builders? And is this what makes the league as accessible as possible? Because that is really one of our key goals. And I can't speak to any specifics of the projects we're working on internally, but I will say that the next year or two is going to be the easiest and most accessible time it ever has been to get into combat robotics, largely in part due to a lot of the great things that the team here at NHRL is doing behind the scenes. I uh, I love to hear that so much, and I think that having accessibility as one of the the main pillars of you know Havoc Robotics is so smart, and it's so important. And it I don't think it always has been traditionally. Like I don't I don't think that previously you could call ro combat robotics an accessible sport in in many you know definitions of that word um and so i think having that as a core tenant of havoc robotics is like it's going to be the future um so i just you know i i think i thank you all for keeping that at the center of everything um because it's it's really easy to kind of throw that by the wayside and and you know not think about that it's much harder to 
try and incorporate that every step of the way. Um, and, and you all do that so well. So thank you. Um, but so we have actually a lot of fan questions from discord where we asked, you know, some of the NHRL community members for questions for you, Jim. Um, so, uh, let's, let's get to it. So everybody's favorite, NHRL competitor Milk Tank. <laughs> uh, team member Ashley Beckman wants to know what's your favorite fire memory? Uh, and we also have a very similar question from Voxel Builder Michael Shore on that one. So, in terms of fire, what is your favorite? My favorite fires are the ones that look spectacular but require me to do absolutely nothing. As fun as, fun <laughs> as, fun as it is to wear the spacesuit. If I don't have to, that's a good day. So I would say that my favorite fire or fire-related event was when Mixtape came to fight in, I believe it was May. It was a great bot and it was a great show to watch. But then towards the end of the night, there was a rumble where it was Mixtape versus a few other bots. And what they did was they took all of their half-full fuel canisters from all the previous events and just duct-taped them onto random robots uh, which was completely absurd. And of course, what ended up happening was one of these bots hit a fuel canister and all of a sudden six half full fuel tanks exploded all at once. And the entire 30 pound cage was just full of a bright orange fireball. And watching it back on the live stream, it was very interesting to see. You could actually watch the shock wave bending the Lexan before the orange fireball covered the camera. Whoa. Um, and that was an incredible fight to see cage side. And it was super exciting. The fans loved it. The builders loved it. I loved it. And once all that fuel was burnt off, we could just go in and clean it up like it was a normal fight. Love it. Oh, man. I remember that so distinctly. I hope we get more of that. Um, absolutely. So kind of uh, going off of that, Ashley's next question is, are you going to miss your spacesuit? Uh. I sort of will. I'll let you guys in on a secret. One of the main reasons why I got the spacesuit, besides the obvious you know, concerns about battery fires, that spacesuit in particular cools the air before it blows it onto your face. So when you're in the very hot production area and you know it's super stuffy because we have all the doors open, uh, it's a real great breath of fresh air to just essentially put on your personal air conditioning unit and sit back there. Wow, that would have come in handy last weekend. <laughs> yeah, I could wear that every day. <laughs> um, so Ashley's uh, next question is, how was your cake? That cake was beautiful, by the way. That was. It was a very good cake. I shared it with all the staff. They all loved it, and they all appreciated it. Uh, it honestly, I was shocked when I saw that. I didn't expect anything like that. And for those out there who don't know, you know, this was a... Um, uh, a wonderful, like, kind of not a parting gift because we know that you'll be back someday, Jim. But as a, uh, a thank you for everything that you've done, and we'll see you as, uh, again soon, Cake. Yeah. Um, so you probably even see that somewhere in uh, in some of our highlights or something from the uh, from the July event. Um, so Ashley's last question here, kind of based on that sentiment, is are you going to miss us as much as we're going to miss you? Oh, absolutely. Even more so, I'd say. This has definitely been one of the most incredible opportunities I'll probably ever have. Uh, it's 
the kind of job where I don't even feel like I'm working. And I actually do want to come in and do more work on the weekends or in the evenings, just because I have so much fun building out this event for the community and also interacting with the community. Uh, I will say I am very excited now that I'm not part of the staff and I can come in a competitor role that I'll be able to interact more with the community and spend more time talking with people because everyone who comes to NHRL is so interesting and fun to talk with. So uh, speaking of voxel builder, Michael Shore, he wants to know, do you have a favorite Norwalk Havoc bot? Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> I- Excluding uh, alternate side and dark side, of course. Oh, of course. Okay. Because <laughs> um, we, I mean, we want to give other people a fighting chance. I'd say I really love non-conventional robots or robots that really push the limits of good engineering. So I'd say my favorite robots probably have to be mixtape uh, because they show that a flamethrower is a viable weapon and then went on to dominate with it. Or I would say uh, Silent X because of those Walker or Shuffler modules. Those are such a beautiful piece of engineering and manufacturing work. And I always love to see them on robots. Yeah, those, those, I mean, they're not wheels. Those, that Walker mechanism, every time I see it, it's just mesmerizing. Um, but all right. So Billy Builder, Jonathan Clark asks, uh, hey, Jim, when do you expect to finish your Beetle and compete at Norwalk? Well, I made the mistake of saying on stream I'd be back in September with it without realizing that September is actually not that far away and I need to move and go back to school in the middle of all that. Uh, I do have some CAD that I'm working on for a very weird ring spinner-like bot. And if I don't have it done for September, I'm really hoping to be here before the end of the 2022 season. All right. All right. You hear you heard it here first, folks. A ring spinner. That's uh you don't see a ton of those at Havoc. So that's really exciting. Yeah, I, I don't want to have to deal with getting good at driving. So I'll just make my weapon on every side of my bot. Smart. <laughs> Smart. All right. Uh NHRL superfan writer Lee Engle, who I have to say is in the chat from like 10 a.m. until end of day, every single event. So hats off to you. Um, he wants to know, what has been your favorite NHRL moment, fire or non-fire alike? I don't know if I could pick out one specific, but the ones that stand out in my mind are always the ones where everyone gets really excited. You can feel the energy in the room. Uh, whenever Milk Tank fights is a great example or when the team from Cornell fought their sportsman against Ed's bot. Uh, it was really great to see. Uh, there was 20-something members of the Cornell team there in the bleachers cheering and clapping. And that kind of energy is just unparalleled. And it's fantastic to see. Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. Um, all right. So wild departure from favorite. But what is the scariest NHRL moment that you can remember or what moment felt most dangerous? I'd like to preface this by saying that I don't think that anything we do is inherently dangerous, but the closest to being unsafe that I've ever felt personally was mostly due to my own fault. Uh, Last year, there was a fire in the pits when the pits were still downstairs I think it was someone was charging their battery without a balance cable and 
a massive 6S battery just popped like a smoke grenade. And at the time, I had all this safety gear. I had respirators. I had fume extractors. Uh, I had dosimeters to track how much dangerous chemicals I've actually been exposed to, ready to go in case of a pit fire. But I was storing them all in my machine shop in the very back corner of the pits, which was the room right next to where this fire started. So to get to all this safety equipment to clear out the smoke, I had to go through the most smoke-filled area of the building. And everything worked out fine. You know, I was not actually exposed to any dangerous levels of smoke or chemical, and I even popped open our dosimeters to check that. But it still felt a little bit wrong to be running into a room full of smoke. Uh, you know, it goes against everything that you've been taught since you know, kindergarten, essentially, when it comes to fire safety. Yeah. Hopefully you, you weren't running through the smoke also with scissors. And I was holding the scissors point up, too, just to really go against everything my <laughs> kindergarten teacher told me to do. <laughs> That's what makes a henchman evil, is running through smoke with a scissors point up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, division builder Seth Schaefer has, has uh, some technical questions. How did you learn so much about IoT devices and PCB design? What was the most complex thing you've built or worked on for NHRL? Uh, so it's a little funny, actually. I have no formal uh, like classical training in electronics design or anything like that. Everything that I build for Norwalk Havoc, I build using skills that I taught myself. Uh, before the pandemic, the most I knew how to do with electronics was blink an LED on and off with an Arduino. And even that would have taken me an hour to set up and do. Uh, so over the pandemic, when I had nothing to do and I was just locked in my apartment, I started watching YouTube videos and building circuits. And over the course of failing and learning from my mistakes many times, I've now gotten to the point where I can confidently build fairly complex systems on par with some of my friends who are electrical engineers on the rocketry team, even though I've never actually sat in on any of those classes. And I think that's definitely one thing that I'd highly recommend to people is uh, to trust yourself as a teacher more. You can teach yourself so many things using the great resources online or even just by trying and failing over and over again. Uh, in terms of the most complex thing that I've built for NHRL, there is a secret project coming up in... It'll probably be in the next few months. It'll actually be unveiled and everyone will see it. But I spent uh, probably a week straight in CAD and simulation and component design for this massive, massive undertaking that we are going through, which, as we talked about before, ties back to this whole idea of making combat robotics more accessible. And I wish I could talk more about it because I'm super excited about this project and I'm very disappointed I won't be here to actually see it unveiled. But it's going to be fantastic when it does eventually get released to the public. Wow, I can't wait. I have no idea what it is. Um, I don't think. <laughs> um, I am super pumped and way to go. Um, all right, Yabnol Builder, Chris Rummel asks, what kind of career are you looking to pursue once you are finished with school? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I 
still keep up with my small business that we talked about. I've actually expanded it in recent years to start including educational kits for learning about soldering and building your own electronics products, uh, as well as keeping up and expanding the 3D printing and starting to break into other forms of manufacturing with laser cutting. So I'd love to continue that and maybe turn that into a full-time job in the future of just building cool things and making interesting and unique products that I think could help a lot of people. Ultimately, though, my dream or goal in life is just to work on things that are cool and exciting, uh, you know, such as Norwalk Havoc. It doesn't get any cooler or more exciting than a job like this. And so that's really the kind of thing that I want to do once I graduate fully. Okay, I have to ask. This is a this is my question now. <laughs> um, when you are working on your resume, do you put evil henchman as your job title? Like, is there a backup job title you got to put on there to kind of like make it more palatable for future employers? Or are you just going to go straight evil henchman and let them ask the questions when they interview you? It's heavily dependent on the company. I've found that uh, sometimes putting evil henchman on a resume or on my LinkedIn will pretty much get it blacklisted by any <laughs> automated systems that are reading it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely not a conventional job title. I will say the silver lining is I don't get those automated LinkedIn bots sending me messages about jobs because no recruiter in their right mind put evil henchman on the list for the ads. <laughs> uh, so when I do eventually apply for jobs, I'll probably switch it over to a more legitimate sounding title, uh, you know, engineer engineering intern or something along those lines because the evil henchman job title as fun as it is to talk about in conversation it does wreak havoc on just about everything else <laughs> even getting an apartment here in norwalk was a bit of a struggle because uh, when i had to put in my offer letter and all of that my <laughs> official legal job title is evil henchman <laughs> Oh, no. So I'm sure that led to a lot of interesting conversations with like your landlord or whoever proves your uh, your uh, apartment application. It, exactly. And it especially didn't help the fact that uh, the company that I technically work for, I said I don't work for Havoc Robotics officially. Uh, we have no like permanent address, no website, no phone number, no nothing. Oh my God. So I just look like a random college dropout who made up a fake company and a fake title. <laughs> and I'm just pinky promising that somebody actually does pay me. <laughs> oh my God. I love it. I love the commitment to the name like, you know, regardless of how many <laughs> problems it causes. I love it. It's like, it's so, it's so Austin. It's so, uh, it's so havoc. I love it. All right. Um, so Skyline Builder Alon Belkin wants to know, um, you know, what, uh, sorry, a couple of these we, we've kind of already asked. Um, what was your work-life balance as a henchman? Uh, it was not fantastic but it was mostly by my own doing like i've said this is the kind of job that i really love to do and so as a result i would put in more hours than i probably should have if i wanted to maintain a good balance uh it's not unusual for me to work 60 plus hours in a week in part because there is just that much work that needs to get done and in part because if i went home 
I would just be doing the same thing or thinking about the same thing because it's what I like to do. On top of that, with the pandemic, a lot of my friend group from Rochester ended up breaking off and now we're doing like socialization online or through Zoom or playing video games together. So it makes it very easy to still have a lot of good social interactions and just squirrel it away at like the end of the day or on a weekend or something like that. Yeah. While still maintaining this 60, 70, 80 hours a week that I'd be doing for Havoc. So what life lessons has being a henchman taught you? I think that it's given me a lot of great experience on self-management and self-discipline. Like I said before, I could go days or weeks without talking to my boss. And so I've had to really become independent and make sure that I'm making the right decisions and work through problems in a way that I am the only one who's actually looking at them and improving my thought processes. And if I make a mistake, then that's a big problem because I'm now single-handedly spending you know, $20,000 on this new system for the league. And so I think in terms of life lessons, one of the biggest things is just learning to slow down, walk away from something you're working on for a day or two and come back and look at it with a new set of eyes or even try to be your own uh, devil's advocate. Look at things that you design as pessimistically as possible. Think about all the ways that someone could try to break or destroy what you're doing and then incorporate that maliciousness into your design and engineering thought processes. So a great example would be the button boxes that I talked about before. Um, when we design them, they're going to get stuck onto the cage. And so if you knock it off the cage, A, why would you do that? And B, it's going to fall a few feet. It's not the end of the world. But by being my own worst enemy, I started thinking about, you know, what if someone hits it really hard? Or what if it gets hit by a robot? Or what if someone gets mad that they got destroyed by a depth charge and they spiked the button box against the floor or something. And it led us to the point where the button boxes are designed now that we can toss them off the roof of the building and they still function perfectly fine. And it's something that probably would have never come up and hopefully never does come up that we actually need them to be that strong. But it's something that I had to realize by being my own enemy. I love that. Um, and his next question, I feel like, you know, it is in the same vein um, how do you feel about, you know, everything when you, when you look back at everything that you have helped build at NHRL and how far it's come since you joined the team, like, how do you feel when you look back on that? Uh, I feel incredibly proud about everything that I've done and everything I've helped to build here. The league has come leaps and bounds from where it was uh, almost two years ago when I joined and I'm super excited to see both the short-term improvements that we're making, but also a lot of the long-term things happening behind the scenes. Uh, it's really incredible to see where the league is going, and I couldn't be more proud of myself, but also the rest of the team here and all the great work that we've accomplished. Yeah. I, I just want to point out, I misread the script. Um, these questions, uh, the last couple, were actually from Harvester team member 
Uh, Ryan Hunter, who also helps run the pits at NHRL. So, you know, someone that who has worked with you for the last several events and has really um, got to see you work firsthand. And and uh, you can I can tell how much he appreciates it. Um, his last question here before he shares some kind words about you, Jim, is uh, who is your favorite fictional hench person? I don't know if I have many favorite fictional hench persons. I don't really root for the bad guys, you know, or anything like that. Also, at the top of my head, I don't think I can even name any fictional henchmen. Like, I know plenty of super villains, but the henchmen don't necessarily get that much screen time, do they? Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like you're breaking the mold. You are, uh, you're really drawing attention and appreciation for the, the little guys, the, the little henchmen out there. Exactly. <laughs> um, so we'll wrap up uh, by sharing some kind words that Ryan wanted to say to you. Um, he says, thank you so much, Jim. As a builder and an NHRL worker, you've always made time to answer a question or help. You always had a smile on your face, even when you were running around doing 10,000 tasks. You will always be a legend in the NHRL halls. And I just want to back up what Ryan said. You know, you always have like the utmost patience and kindness. Um, even when I know you are under the wire and doing a million different things, you've always been so good to us and and to everyone and i know chris has uh has leaned on you a few times um with his bot stuff and you always somehow make the time and uh there will never be another gym so i hope uh whoever you know henchmen come to try and fill your shoes uh you train them well because <laughs> there will never be another you thanks guys i really appreciate that and you know i I just want to reiterate again, I couldn't have done this without the community. Everyone was so inviting and open and great to talk with. And I really feel like I owe most of my success to the community and how great everyone has been to me. Awesome. All right, Jim. Well, thank you again so very much. Um, and uh, thanks for talking with us. And I hope you have a great time finishing up at RIT. Thank you. And I hope to see you guys in September with a robot. Yeah, you know it. Oh, it's coming back with a vengeance. <laughs> After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we're traveling to San Francisco, where a startup called EarthGrid is developing a new robot that creates underground tunnels by vaporizing whatever stands in its way using plasma cutters. Great. The so-called rapid burrowing robot is outfitted with dozens of electric plasma torches that slowly rotate on disks, liquefying rocks and dirt at nearly 49,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The robot is theoretically capable of tunneling up to one kilometer per day, which is about 100 times faster than the traditional drill, and four times faster than Elon Musk's boring machines from the Boring Company. EarthGrid says the rapid burrowing robot can be operated by a small crew of humans, 
who would be responsible for cleaning up any messes it left behind. Uh, I believe it can also be operated by a small crew of inmates who are looking to see the outside of a prison cell. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's it's four times faster than the boring machine. It's a hundred times faster than traditional drills, and it's a, and it's a hundred and fifty thousand times faster than Andy Dufresne. <laughs> <laughs> better joke yeah better delivery you you win pretty cool though liquefying the rock um and uh you know carving through it that way probably offers a lot more uh resilience in what structure is left behind because when you're boring through you know sedimentary rock or or whatever you're probably causing a lot of different types of stress fractures and everything around it that they then have to enclose um i'm curious to know like what their end game is is it for uh literally passenger tunnels freight tunnels i always thought that it'd be a really good idea considering uh, as as a resident of new york city los angeles i've lived in cities like like phoenix it's, you know, one of the challenges with cities and underground infrastructure is it's like really hard to put fiber optic lines and stuff in when there's so much pre-existing just junk in the ground. Like, why can't you use, a, you know, something like this to actually create uh, new channels to put new infrastructure under? And so like making a tunnel that is only four feet or three feet in diameter uh, so that you could run fiber optic, that you could run new, uh, you know, natural gas lines or, or you know, whatever else uh, safely below ground so that it's not um, at the, uh, you know, it's not at the surface level, which is prone to, uh, you know, weather knockouts or a drunk driver or something like that that can knock uh, part of a city offline, you know, uh, I, I love this technology and one day I really hope that I can just take a high speed tunnel from, uh, from New York to, um, I don't know, Glasgow and, uh, and go and, you know, get some, uh, like a full Scottish breakfast and then head back, uh, for, for dinner. I don't know. It's, it's, I love this technology. I hope nobody points, uh, 49,000 degree Fahrenheit plasma torch at me. Um, uh, but we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, we're not worried about the uh, the possible ramifications of this one. I mean, this is by far the most powerful thing I think we've ever reviewed in robots around the world. And it does sound the most like something a supervillain would build. Oh, yeah. No, this terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a robot that is specifically designed to vaporize whatever stands in its way. Yeah, I have concerns. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, literally using the fourth state of matter to convert uh, whatever it's in its way to liquid. I love it. I think that's going to be uh, super good and super awesome and not affect our fault lines anywhere in the country that this thing is used. Ooh, that's a good point. That's a good point. See, I, I've been listening to a lot of murder podcasts lately. And so my first... Really? Yeah, I don't know why. Make her stop. <laughs> I'm like on an an investigative journalism kick for some reason. But, you know, a lot of the times people who go missing, turns out their body is buried in the earth somewhere. So my literal first thought was, oh, my goodness, how many uh, missing persons are going to be 
vaporized. Vaporized? That, that's kinda... that's the first place your brain went? Yeah, that's a problem. Oh my goodness. Sorry. Wow. It's it's wow. been a lot of murder podcasts. I'll I'll need to take a break now. I see the it's error a, of my It's getting pretty popular in your demographic there, Lindsay. There's something going on <laughs> with the uh the you know, eighteen to forty subset of women in America where you guys are just really into murder right now. Yeah, it's like a national phenomenon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just I'll just say that this um, that this electric plasma uh, uh, rock liquefying burrowing robot uh, I find to be way less threatening than a Russian chess robot. <laughs> I'm a, I'm honestly surprised we didn't go uh, that route this week. We'll see. Maybe we save it for robots around the world next week. Yeah, that's pretty intense. It broke a kid's finger, right? Oh, it did. yeah, I think it like it shattered a kid's thing. Like it's it, the robot began to understand that it was losing the match. And so it got upset and grabbed the kid's hand and broke like his fingers. I thought it was just because he was making his moves too fast. I like to tell my own story. <laughs> okay, if, if, if our listeners out there don't know this by now, 90% of the things that I say are just completely untrue. Wait. I was going to say, there's some editorializing going on with uh, with Chris's commentary on the Russian robot situation. Does that mean you could be lying about Clyde Magnuson, too? No, he has a mustache, and I don't have a mustache. Fair. Okay. There's no different people. Yeah. Silly me. Silly me. Well, that's about it for us today. We want to thank Nicole for doing such an awesome job editing this week's episode. Thank you so much, Nicole. We'll be back in your feed uh, next week with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. See you later. There once was a bot who's from the sea. The name of the bot was the Kraken of Teeth. The lights went up, the buzzer sounds, although my scaly girl go. Soon may the spinner man come to knock her teeth right from her gums. One day when the fighting is done, she'll take her teeth and go. She'd not been two weeks from shore When out did come her metal jaw The captain called all hands and swore He'd take that spinner in tow <gasps> Soon may the spinner man come To knock her teeth right from her gums One day when the fighting is done She'll take